are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. One of the oldest game shows still on TV today is To Tell the Truth. It originally premiered in 1956. The premise of the show is to determine who is telling the truth among three imposters all claiming to be the same person. Celebrity panelists ask questions and then they choose who they think is the actual person that they're claiming to be. The culmination of the show is when the host asks, will the real Mike Dewey or Slim Shady please stand up? Now let's consider some famous historical imposters. See if you can guess any of these. Anne Lee, David Shaler, Jacob Joseph Frank. Not familiar with them? How about these ones? Marshall Applewhite, Jim Jones, Sun Young Moon, David Koresh. I bet you recognize some of those names. You see, they all have one thing in common. Each of them are imposter messiahs. And if you go online, you're going to see that the list of imposters claiming to be Jesus or the promised Messiah is quite long. Even during uh, Jesus' own lifetime, false messiahs were roaming the countryside. Theodos and Simon of Perea are mentioned by the Jewish historian Josephus as living during the time of Jesus. Both claimed to be the Messiah and both led rather unsuccessful revolts against Rome. We even have one mentioned in the Bible where, where Jesus' disciples encounter the magician Simon Magus. While none of these imposters are present in our text, they are part of the cultural background noise that is interfering with people being able to see Jesus for who he truly is. And because Jesus senses this, he decides it's time for the real Jesus to stand up. It's fitting uh, it's a fitting passage for our own time as well, because there are plenty of people today who have misconceptions about who Jesus is, why he came, what it means to follow him. In other words, just like we'll see in the passage, there are plenty of people today following Jesus for the wrong reasons. My hope is that through our text, each of us will be reintroduced to the real Jesus, or perhaps even for some, introduced to him for the first time. So let's dive in to John 6, 52-57. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught 
at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to pray, betray him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us, that you reveal yourself and how you want us to live. Open our hearts, open our minds. Help us to hear you, not to hear me, but, but to hear your spirit. And help us to see you as you truly are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. This sermon series is entitled, Seeing Jesus. And in many ways, this passage is the culmination of the first quarter of the Gospel of John. And it foreshadows the ultimate culmination of the book, the death and resurrection of Christ. And the whole point of this passage is seeing Jesus for who he really is. If you're taking notes, I've structured this message according to the progression that we see in these verses. Jesus speaks first to the crowds, then specifically to the 12 disciples, and then finally he indirectly speaks to Judas, the one who would go on to betray him. So the first thing we see in the text is Jesus calling the crowd to see him, to see him as he really is, what his true purpose is. Now let's put this passage in its proper context. Historically, you could say that the time was ripe for the Messiah. Herod's temple was a mere shadow of Solomon's. The, the Roman Empire ruled the land. The Israelites had, had a king, Herod, but he was actually a puppet of Rome, and he certainly wasn't a true servant of God. The people were under oppression. Poverty was rampant, and they were longing for the promised Messiah. Hence, the preponderance of false messiahs roaming the Judean hills and deserts. And, and in such an environment, it was definitely not surprising that everyone had a preconceived notion of what the Messiah would be like. Textually, let's recap what's led up to this point. Chapter 1, John the Baptist points to Christ and declares that he is the Lamb of God. Some of John's disciples leave him to follow Jesus. 
Chapter 2, Jesus is seen as a miracle worker. He turns water into wine. Chapter 3, Jesus is seen as a good teacher. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, We know that you're a good teacher, a teacher from God, and you've done great signs. Chapter 4, Jesus is seen as a prophet. The Samaritan woman goes around telling everyone, He told me all that I've ever done. And it says, Many people started believing in Jesus. Chapter 5, Jesus is seen as a healer. He heals a man at the Bethesda pool. And then chapter 6, where we are today, verse 2 tells us, Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, large crowds began following him. Now, how large are we talking here? Well, the text tells us that when Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish, there were 5,000 men. Now, that's not counting the women and children that were likely present. And so verse 14 in the text culminates with the people saw the sign and they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. This is the Messiah. He has finally come. We're saved. But it then goes on to tell us that they were going to take hold of him and make him king. See, that brings us now, that brings us to last week's message and this message, which go hand in hand. And as we see these larger and larger crowds of people following Jesus, it's clear that they're, they're doing so for the wrong reason. He's a great teacher. He's a healer. He's a prophet. He feeds the people. He will be our king. Ludwig Wittgenstein is a very well-known 20th century philosopher who like to talk about the difference between seen as and seen that. Now, now, don't worry. I'm not going to give you a philosophy lesson today, just the insight he provided. Whenever we perceive something, read a text, or hear someone speak, we see and hear it only as it comes to us through preconceived notions and ideas that we have, theoretical conceptions, past experiences. And I see that being lived out in this text. See, all along Jesus has been telling people why he came to earth, what his true purpose was. He hasn't been keeping that a secret. If you look back through all those previous chapters in the book of John, he keeps telling them, but they haven't really heard him. They're only seeing and hearing Jesus through that interpretive lens that Wittgenstein talks about. They see the Messiah as a political savior. The miracles of healing and feeding are just, just the icing on the cake. The Messiah to them was, was going to restore the Davidic kingdom, drive out the hated Romans, bring peace and prosperity, and restore the presence of God among the people. And so it's time for them to have a uh, come-to-Jesus moment. Sorry, I couldn't resist. We use that phrase in contemporary culture to indicate a breakthrough in a person's life. But this is actually a real come-to-Jesus moment for this crowd. Jesus needs to set the record straight. He calls the crowd to see him, to really and truly see him for who he is and what he has come to do for them. In last week's passage, verse 26 tells us this much. It says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. See, this is where Jesus reiterates what he's been telling them all along. The real reason I've come is not to give physical bread, food to eat. 
I'm the bread of life. In the first 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. I love this here because the Greek word for looks suggests that the meaning of Christ's words are everyone who reflects upon who the Son really is will have eternal life. But even at this point, the crowd still don't get it. They start grumbling. How can he be the bread of, of life? How can he be bread from heaven? We know this guy. And so this is the point where Jesus drops what is commonly referred to as one of the hard sayings of Christ. You can almost feel, get a feel from this passage what Jesus must be thinking. Okay. So you having problems with uh, me saying I'm the bread of life? Let's see how you handle this. This bread that you have to eat, it's my flesh. I mean, he had to just blow their minds, didn't he? In verse 52, look what verse 52 tells us. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Really, the word disputed there in that verse doesn't quite capture the commotion that, that Christ's words cause in the crowd. The word here in the Greek for disputed is the same word that indicates fighting in armed combat. So what we have in this verse is a war of words breaking out. People are getting hot. And you can sense the contempt, the contempt and the scornful disbelief. How can this man, this guy, this Jesus, give us his flesh to eat? And I can see, I can just see Jesus standing there watching this unfold. Not surprised. I mean, he, he knew this would be the response. So what does he do? He, he tries to settle the crowd down, make peace, right? Not quite. He doubles down. I like to say this is where Jesus lowers the boom on the crowd. This is Jesus' hammer moment. I'm sure you're familiar with Luther's hammer. I'm not talking about the uh, hardcore Christian punk band. I'm talking about the actual hammer that Martin Luther used to nail the 95 Thesis to the Wittenberg door in 1517. The hammer that caused such a stir and uproar that it led to the Protestant Reformation. The atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche liked to say that he philosophized with a hammer. See, his father was a Lutheran pastor, so most scholars think Nietzsche was making a reference back to Luther's hammer. He liked to say controversial things that stirred people up because he was trying to break through to them to reevaluate, get them to reevaluate their beliefs, just like Luther had before him. And this is Jesus using a hammer with one of his hardest sayings, trying to break through to the crowd and get them to see him as he really is. Verse 53 begins with the words, truly, truly, or I tell you the truth. What, what this means is that that he's serious. It's actually the fourth time he's used it in this chapter. He wants there to be no doubt. This is important. The essence of who he is and what he has come to do. In other words, if you miss this or can't understand it, you miss everything important about Jesus. 
So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Now I want you to notice here, Jesus is intentionally being provocative. He's painting a, a vividly shocking picture. He knows that his audience is familiar with the Old Testament prohibition on eating human flesh and drinking blood. And he just doesn't say it once. He repeats the eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood three times. He's being emphatic. You can hear that hammer clanking away. Clank, clank, clank. Rest assured, Jesus is not talking about actually eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He's speaking figuratively. And there are several clues in the text that support this. The, the biggest being verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So what is it that Jesus is saying about himself? He's talking about the flesh and blood that the Son of God took on in coming to earth. And the fact that that same flesh will be torn and that same blood spilled on the cross. And when we look at all other occurrences in Scripture of, of flesh and blood and separation, it always points to death. And in this case, to Christ's death on the cross. The mention of Christ's ascension in verse 62 confirms that this is what he's referring to. The ascension is always to be taken hand in hand with the death and resurrection of Christ. He's telling them that he's going to die. This is his purpose in coming. But still, still, the majority of those present don't understand. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Jesus goes on to tell us the larger crowds of disciples, all of the people who are following him around the countryside, not just the 12, can't accept what he's saying. It's not so much it's hard to understand as it is hard to accept. Who can listen to it? Literally, it means who can hear it? Who can accept this? They just couldn't fathom the Messiah dying. See, the reality of the cross, of what Christ actually came to do, offends people. It's a stumbling block. We know why it offended the crowds at the time. They wanted a Messiah who was going to deliver them from Rome, not their sins. They wanted a king, someone to take care of them in the here and now, to meet their physical needs. But the true gospel message is still an offense today. See, there's a lot of people today who are followers of Christ, but they've imposed upon him their own conception of who they want him to be. A great moral teacher, a social justice warrior, a model of what it means to be human. Someone who you can look to to get you through the tough times. An inspiration right alongside Buddha, Confucius, and Gandhi. 
that's not the Christ we follow. We follow a crucified Savior who died on the cross for our sins. Because we were lost, unable to save ourselves, he died for us. He calls us to admit we're sinners, that there's nothing good in us, that we can't save ourselves. He calls us to the cross to lay down our old lives, confess that he died for us, to give us eternal life, and allow him to transform us into what he wants us to be. See, that message, it's the simplest to understand, but it's not the easiest to accept. Scottish, Scottish theologian William Barclay put it this way, to this day, many a man's refusal of Christ comes not because Christ puzzles and baffles his intellect, but because Christ challenges and condemns his life. So just as Jesus is calling the crowd to see him, to see him as he truly is, what his true purpose is, and to follow him, he's calling us as well. Now I have a confession. See, I like philosophy, which I assume you've probably picked up on now. I especially like Christian philosophy. I love the elegance of the Christian worldview, its coherence, cohesion, the superiority of the Christian ethics. Sometimes I wonder, though, if the Jesus I'm following, the God that I worship, is a philosophical shadow of the true Jesus. That somehow I, I have allowed these other things, all of which are true, all of which are part of the Christian faith, to obscure the real Jesus. You see, it's far too easy to forget what my faith is truly anchored to, the crucified Christ, the one whose flesh was torn, blood was spilled for me, a sinner condemned, but who is now redeemed. Maybe you're enamored by the social justice Jesus, the, the great moral teacher, the inspirational Jesus. If in any way you've allowed yourself to take your eyes off the real Jesus, and allow other things to take his place. Now's the time to put them back on the cross, to remember what first brought you to church, to rediscover the crucified Christ that gave his life for you. I love C.H. Spurgeon's first words in the pulpit of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. This is what he says. I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house as long as this platform shall stand and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshipers shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist. But if I'm asked what my creed is, I reply, it is Jesus Christ. Amen. After speaking to the crowd as a whole, the next thing we see in the text is Jesus asking the disciples to surrender to him, to accept him as the only one who's able to give them eternal life. The beauty of this passage is that after Jesus drops this hard saying and the dust settles, it pivots rather quickly to one of the most poignant moments between Jesus and his disciples. 
Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Verse 67, I mean, that's the truly poignant part of the text. The negative response is anticipated in the Greek here. In other words, Jesus expects a negative a negative answer from his disciples. I mean, if we think back to the original setting with Jesus having fed well over 5,000 people, the crowd is now turning and, and they're walking away. This has to be one of the most disheartening and frustrating moments in Christ's ministry. Not that he was surprised by it, but to see so many who just moments earlier were clamoring to follow him, turn and reject him and walk away. It's unlikely that just the 12 disciples remained, but we've gone from a massive crowd to now just a remnant. And Jesus turns to them and basically says, will you also go away? Are you going to leave me too? In theological circles, there's a debate about when the disciples became Christian and uh, when did they give their lives to Christ as Savior. Now, some people say that they were Christians from the moment Jesus called them. Others say it, it couldn't have been until the day of Pentecost or once they finally fully understood what Jesus came to do for them, to die on the cross and to rise from the dead. Now, we're not going to wade into those waters today, but, but there's no doubt that at least for Peter, this is a decisive moment in his walk with God. Look what verse 68 tells us. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. His words clearly indicate that he recognized the difference between Jesus' words and those of the other religious teachers and the false messiahs that were wandering the countryside. Who else are we going to go to? I've heard the others, Jesus, but you, you have the words of life. You're the only one who saves. I love the original language here. It indicates that we have come to believe and still believe. This is Peter's personal confession. And, you know, it's unlikely that he understood the totality of the cross, but, but here is the moment where he speaks from his heart and gives it to Christ. Now, I don't want to assume that everyone who's listening today has already had a moment like that. It's far too easy to get caught up in Christianity because you were raised in a Christian home or everyone else you know considers themselves a Christian or even went to a Christian school. We all have to allow God's Spirit to search our heart to determine if we, we've just been going with the flow or, or following the crowd. And this passage tells us that's not enough. It, it wasn't enough for the, the thousands who ended up turning and walking away when Jesus didn't turn out to be quite what they expected. And it won't be enough when you encounter challenges to your faith or difficult times in your life. For each of us, for everyone who is to call themselves a follower of Christ, the decision must be personal 
individually made. I love what theologian J.I. Packer said in commenting on this passage. He says, The reference Jesus made to eating his flesh and drinking his blood is a metaphorical way of describing a person who draws on, claims, or lays hold of the reality of his atoning sacrifice by putting personal faith in him. That is what this passage is all about. And I'd be failing you, not representing the the full meaning of this text if I didn't give you an opportunity right now to make that commitment. So just as Jesus is asking the disciples to surrender to him, there may be some of you watching who have never made that commitment, never made that personal declaration that Christ's death on the cross is the payment for your sins. But you can today, right now. See, the Bible tells us that Romans 10, 9, in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, it's simple, really. Let me share with you the exact same prayer I prayed over 30 years ago. It's not a magical formula. It's just a way to verbalize what you believe in your heart. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I open the door in my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of my life. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. Now, if that's the choice you desire to make today, then I want you to hit the rewind and make that your prayer, to repeat that prayer. And if you do that, tell another Christian. Send an email to the church because you will not want to forget this day. Just as we can read in this text and rejoice along with Peter's declaration We want to rejoice along with you. Now I want to conclude this morning by looking at just the last few verses and the last person that gets attention in this text. Jesus started off by speaking to the crowds, the the thousands that were following him, calling them to see the real Jesus. Then he addresses the 12 disciples, asking them to individually surrender to him. The last thing we see in the text is Jesus challenging Judas to serve him. Now, I don't want to read too much into this text, but it's clear that Judas was the only one of the 12 who was serving his own cause. He had his own mission that he was on. Look at verse 70. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is evil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, there's not a great deal said in these last few verses, but but it's clear that Jesus is speaking about Judas. And I believe he's speaking directly to Judas. See, Jesus strikes me as the kind of person who is, you know, if he's going to be saying something that's directed toward a particular person... He's going to be looking right at him. He didn't shy away from confrontation. 
Now, we know very little about Judas apart from what the Bible tells us. There are some who speculate that Judas was associated with a group of political rebels that existed around the time of Christ. Certainly, that might explain why he is led to betray Jesus later on. Perhaps he was one of the many followers who viewed Jesus largely as a political messiah who would force out the Romans and restore the Davidic kingdom. Whatever his specific reasons, what I want us to realize is that Judas had his own agenda for Jesus. See, instead of serving Jesus, Jesus' cause, he wanted Jesus to serve his cause. So this gives us an opportunity before we part ways today to ask ourselves, whose cause are we serving? How we present Jesus to those around us likely reveals a great deal of whether we're serving the real Jesus or an imposter. It's okay to talk about the uh, exemplary aspects of our great faith. I love a good theological debate or a philosophical discussion. I have had heated disputes with unbelieving relatives about the problem of evil. I've discussed the moral superiority of biblical values with nihilists, maintained the coherence of theistic belief with atheists. But if in the process of doing all that, I have failed to talk about the cross, to lay bare the death of Jesus as the payment for our sins, then I have not served Jesus well. We can't hide that part of the gospel as if it's an afterthought and what it means to be a Christian. We can't awkwardly tag it on to the end of our discussions as if we're somehow embarrassed by it. And we can't sacrifice it to some other agenda that we have to promote social justice or moral policies. I love how Paul declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Christ's death on the cross, the shedding of his blood, it must be the ground and the pinnacle of everything we say about our faith. So just as Jesus is challenging Judas, albeit indirectly, to serve him and not his own agenda, Jesus is challenging us, both individually and as a body of believers, to serve him. Preach the gospel. Don't be ashamed. In 1931, three Oxford University professors decided to stroll down Addison's Walk near Magdalen College. Two were committed Christians. J.R.R. Tolkien, who gained fame as the author of The Hobbit in The Lord of the Rings, and Hugo Dyson, well-known Shakespearean scholar. The third was C.S. Lewis. Lewis had interest in Christianity, but continued to have reservations. I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have listened in on that conversation. These three scholars, these towering intellects, and I can imagine, only imagine, the depth of the philosophical discussion as Dyson, Tolkien, reasoned with their unbelieving colleague. We actually do know what the discussion was that day. Lewis tells us it was Jesus. 
And it was his sacrifice on the cross. It was the one thing that Lewis struggled with the most in understanding. How could God send Jesus to die on the cross for sins he didn't commit? Tolkien and Dyson spoke of the overwhelming love of God that drove Christ to the cross. And as you would expect, they also pointed to many examples in the literature of heroes who sacrificed themselves for a cause. The difference was that this story of Jesus was true. It really happened. And there was no greater cause than the salvation of God's creation. History reveals that their arguments resonated with Lewis. That night he knelt in prayer and gave his life to Christ. And of course, it most definitely reveals how that one act of faithfulness on the part of Tolkien and Dyson in serving Christ, the real Christ, the one who came to die on the cross by putting him front and center. Oh, how it has impacted the world through the writings of C.S. Lewis. Just imagine the change we can bring about in our communities, our families, on our campus, around the world, if we can just do the same. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, speak to us. Reveal yourself to us. Open our eyes. Don't allow us to cling to false conceptions of who you are and, and what you are about. Help us to see you for who you really are. And then, Lord, help us to never be ashamed to speak that. Oh, to go from some of the, the most loftiest of discussions of philosophy and theology to then talk about the cross, the most lofty of all discussions. Yes, it will offense. It will be an offense to some. But let us never be ashamed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace.